Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 215 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Walt Fritz. He's been a physical therapist since 1985 and entered the world of providing manual therapy education for SLPs in 2013. Since then, he has had the honor of working with thousands of SLPs and related professionals through the Foundations in Manual Therapy Seminar, including voice and swallowing disorders, advanced voice and swallowing disorders, and the new Balancing the Body. Walt's approach to manual therapy moves the understanding onwards from older tissue-based explanations into one that includes shared decision-making and multifactorial possibilities for explaining the actions of hands-on work. He works to build a bridge between these new views on the effects of manual therapy with the SLP, allowing them to use both the multifactorial understanding of manual therapy's effects, coupled with the potential for a richer patient engagement via shared decision-making intervention models. In early 2022, Walt's first book, Manual Therapy and Voice and Swallowing Disorders, will be released by Compton Publishing. Mixed in with his busy teaching schedule, Walt sees patients in his upstate New York physical therapy practice. And as you'll hear, Walt reminded me that it's been four years since he, he's been on the podcast. I cannot believe we've been doing this for four years, but I'm so glad to have Walt back. This is a wonderful conversation. Um, he also wanted me to let you guys know if you are interested in taking any of his seminars or online courses at waltfritz.com. You can use code SwallowYourPride. It's all one word, SwallowYourPride, for 10% off. That's a discount code for all of you. I don't make a profit for telling you that. Uh, just a courtesy that he's passing along to you guys, a discount that you get. So that's at waltfritz.com. Um, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. 
Good morning, my friend. Good morning, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, yeah. It's been a four years. Doesn't oh my seem God. like that long. Yeah, no. yeah. No. I think I was in the 20s. Um, I think in so. In terms of your, yeah, yeah, like back back in the Stone Ages of of, of recording these, right? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant age wise 20s. Yes. Well, sure. That too. That too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That too. <laughs> I know. I think we're in the 200s now. I think this will be like. Around wow. two fifteen episodes, which is wild. I when I was congratulations was, to you. Thank that, you. That, that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. It's just been something I've loved, so I keep doing yeah. it. So why not? There you I go. To yeah. Chat with my friends, and everybody else gets to hear it too. So why not? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're not neighbors anymore now that you're. In Florida, I know. Right? I know. Yeah. I know. I know. I miss yeah. so many of my upstate New York friends dearly, but yeah, I very yeah. much love the weather here. So I'm. I can imagine. So probably not yeah. coming back. Nope. <laughs> All right. So a few different things I want to talk about today. And um, first of all, I guess if if the people don't know who you are, Walt, if you want to just tell them who you are. I'm Walt. And then? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm Walt Fritz. I'm a physical therapist from upstate New York. Um, I have for the last 10 years been just so blessed to be able to be included in the speech pathology community with um, some seminars that I teach. Uh, my manual therapy for voice and swallowing disorder seminar has become sort of this sidelight thing that I, I actually it was 2013 that I taught my first one, sort of a sidelight thing that I knew nothing about or thought I knew a lot about, but I didn't until until now um, where I still it's not like I know the, the role and the job of the speech pathologist, but I know your world better than I did then. And I know how I think to make manual therapy more um presented from your perspective, as well as maybe the perspective of your patients. So um, it's now probably about 90% of the classes that I teach is, teach um, in the United States and abroad. And it's just, it's become who I have or who I am and what I really enjoy. And can I do a shameless plug like right here please. off the bat? Yes, in please. early <laughs> next year, I've got a book coming out through Compton Publishing titled uh, Manual Therapy in Voice and Swallowing, a person-centered approach that I it was the hardest thing in my entire life writing this book for Compton, and we're just uh, working our way through the edits. And hopefully by January or February, it's going to hit the shelves as well as hit Amazon as an ebook. So really excited for that. And um, and yeah, so that's who I am in a nutshell. Awesome, amazing. I yeah. so my book was supposed to come out in March, and I think it finally came out in September. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's awful. It's just awful. Yeah. But yes, hopefully the the rewards and the people that it reaches will take over for the awful process that it is. There you go. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. How did, how did you get into working with SLPs, Walt? So officially Jan Potter Reed from who was at the Chicago Voice Care, University of Chicago Voice Care Center, I think I had that right, um, invited me in 2012 to, to teach a one-of class in 2013 in Chicago with um, Benjamin Asher, an ENT from New York City, who um, lectured a lot and written some papers in the Journal of Voice on manual therapy for voice. And he inv- she invited the two of us to teach this class. And in hindsight, I thought it was a disaster because I thought I knew what I was doing. I, I had a couple of speech pathologists come to my classes over the years. And, you know, what I did was basically taught my, at the time I called it mouthwash release. And instead of using other words, I substituted speech pathologist and thought that I was making it relevant for you guys, which is only half joking. Um, but it, it was fairly well received, so well received that over the next year or two, with the help of Jan and a few other speech pathologists, they kind of helped me um, um, up my game a little bit to make the work, make the seminar more appropriate for 
not only you as a clinician, not only you, your patients, but also for the evidence that that your profession demands, which was a hard one for me. And it's been a constantly evolving process since 2013 to the point where I think my class is actually getting close to being fully evidence-based. I say that um, in seriousness, that I think that I can always do better as we can always get better in terms of understanding what the research means when it comes to manual therapy, when it comes to applying it for voice, when it comes to applying it for swallow, but not only how that evidence is applied from an outcome-based perspective, but from the mechanism of action. And um, that's how I got started. And, you know, we talked briefly about also my trans or my evolution from being all about the fascia back then to all about the muscle, to all about the pathology, to the point now where I'm all about the human and I'm all about the person, the full person that you and I are working with. Because manual therapy has always been, and it still is in the 99% of the literature, I'm in the middle of a paper I'm writing about that, in terms of the clinician being the expert in deciding what's wrong based on views of where the larynx should be, what should be the muscle tension, all that stuff. The, the clinician is viewed as the expert where they reach in and they evaluate and they figure out, okay, I know what's wrong with you, Teresa. Now just basically bite on this stick while I get that crap out of you. Um, and release this muscle tension or reduce that fibrosis or whatever, where basically the patient is playing sort of this null role, um, role not contributing other than um, hopefully the clinician responding if they're making facial grimaces and something hurts. And I, I think the evidence is clear that that works, whether it's in the, the niche of speech pathology and, and manual therapy or in the broader field of manual therapy. But I think there's so much more to learn about the role of the patient, elevating the patient to a model of shared decision making. And really that's become who I, I am about, whether it's about teaching speech pathologists or PTs or massage therapists or anybody. And, you know, and that's totally where I've gone in the last few years as well, too. So I think it's really funny that our paths have sort of paralleled and we never, you know, had this conversation before. I wasn't like, oh, I'm yeah. going to jump on Walt's, you know, shared decision making bandwagon. But, you know, for me, it really stemmed from just, you know, having a, a child with special needs and just working with these different therapists and different doctors that just tell you what they think is best. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, but that isn't going to work for me or my family, but, and they don't care, you know? And, yeah. and so for me, I, I will die on the hill of, of the patient being such a priority in evidence-based practice. I'm going to die on that hill. I do not care. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, we, you don't get the results without involving the patient because if they don't, if you don't have the buy-in, if you don't, if you're not on the same team, they're not going to carry anything over. I know there's so many right. therapists, I hate to say it, I just totally tuned them out because it wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to work for our family. And then when yeah. we found therapists that just listened or made even little tweaks with the way we did things or what would work best for our family or our house, um, it, it just opened up a whole new world of this team, basically. And like you said, the yeah. shared decision-making. Yeah. In terms of the manual therapy, manual shared decision-making from a manual therapy model is, well, it's, I think a lot of people go, oh, yeah, we, we do include the patient. We do include um, patient perspectives and values. But I think it's a lot of empty promises. Or in my experience, three dangerous words, in my experience, when it comes to observing people doing what they think is an evidence-based model, right, that third wing of evidence-based being the, the patient perspectives and values, they're asking questions like, how's my pressure? And the patient says, oh, it's fine. And they feel like, okay, I checked that box. Therefore, I can now go, now go do what I think is 
is best? And, you know, that's a, that's a lovely question. How's my pressure? But it doesn't give me anywhere enough information. When a clinician comes in to take one of my seminars, I, I, I let them know that, you know, maybe what they think they're going to learn this weekend is about some nifty hands-on skills to help with all these various problems. And, and that's certainly one of the outcomes that I'm hoping for. But I really hope that they come home understanding how we can leverage patient preferences, patient values, patients' opinions, not only in manual therapy, but in exercise-based intervention, in behavioral-based intervention. Essentially, I think in anything that you and I do, we, we could up our game and get the patient's perspective more. And I, I just see that as really missing from, well, at least the rabbit hole of manual therapy and in therapies in general. Let me back you up a minute here, Walt, because I know that people will say, well, manual therapy is something that PTs and OTs do. SLPs shouldn't put our hands on our patients. And I've heard that numerous times, and I'd love to hear your... Well, I I still hear it, and it's an arguable point. I mean, your scope of practice is so vague, and I love it. I love the vagueness (laughs) of it because it truly allows the clinician to say, okay, here's an intervention that is spoken about in our professional literature, which it is, and whether you're working with voice or whether you're working with swallow or, or radiation fibrotic changes in Trismus, whatever that is, there's evidence that's been published in all the various journals that talk about the speech pathologist's role using manual therapy. And I, I, I hear that and I, in, in terms of saying, no, we shouldn't be doing that. PT should be doing that. And I've gotten clinicians saying, you know what, PT and speech pathology sometimes, for instance, let's talk about Trismus and TMJ. A lot of those, those TMJ patients get filtered over to, to PT, but yet they have some comorbidities with trismus or head neck, right? Um, should we be doing the same thing as the PT? And I said, absolutely, yes, because the context from which you're presenting that information, that treatment is so different from what the PT is thinking about and looking for in terms of goals and outcomes. I would love it if, you know, it's not going to happen often, but if the two of you could actually do the exact same intervention intraoral, extraoral, whatever that is, but from the context of who you are, should you be doing this work? Well, your scope of practice allows it. Your literature supports it. So it's probably just your supervisor who's saying, no, you shouldn't, or maybe your supervisor is a PT who's saying, no, you shouldn't. I don't know. I don't know where those arguments come from. from. I mean, literally from 1990, when Aronson included the concept of hands-on work, at least for muscle tension dysphonia, it was sort of, the door was open for you. And then, you know, throughout the 90s and 2000s, the studies were published supporting it. It's been more recent when it comes to swallowing, et cetera, but it's in the literature. What's stopping you? Maybe training, maybe feeling like you know enough about that anatomy and physiology um, and sure, you know, we've all got stuff to learn whenever we learn something new, but I would just say, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and I think, you know, obviously there's so many things in our field we've had to buck the trend about. We've had to just question, why is this a no? And it might be yeah. a no because somebody said it was a no and nobody had any rationale to support the no. Um, exactly. you know, it's just, it's just like the telephone game. It just no, 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 no. That got carried down for years and years, but um, yeah, and there's, I mean, I, I, and there's a there's a fair amount of studies that show these these protocols that were both PT and SLPs working together. Oh, there's a novel concept, right? Working together yeah. with patients, and whether it's this 
this goofy um, post-stroke dysphagia and stair chair, um, chair stand exercise. It's not goofy, but the way people interpret it is goofy. It's like you're seeing that overlap between what the PT's doing, the SLP's doing. And instead of saying, okay, for the manual therapy, hands-on part, let, let's you, the PT, do that. It's like either do it yourself or let's do it together and, and see if our outcomes can be leveraged even more, especially if we include the patient. Right. Yep. 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 Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Well, cause that was something I know you mentioned it before and I, I thought it was so, so, so fascinating. Yeah. You know, about, I guess it's about three months ago or so this kind of made the rounds on social media and I know it made the rounds on, on some of the SLP groups of which I lurk in. And, um, you know, it, what's so special about chair to stand exercise, basically getting somebody um, to stand up from a chair post stroke. And I, you know, the magic of a chair stand exercise is there isn't any magic at all. It's getting them moving. It's getting them mobilized. It's getting them stronger exercise, not just from a muscle perspective, but from that neurophysiologic, hopefully effect of exercise. And they, they use specifically the concept of sarcopenia, which is muscle weakness and loss of strength, or I'm sorry, loss of muscle size, and see some correlates with dysphagia when it comes to stroke with sarcopenia and strength. And they even postulate that is part of the, the reason for the dysphagia, the muscle weakness itself versus the thought of upper motor neuron type problems with the stroke. And, and you know, that's not the point of the study. They're putting it in a speculation as to why they got the outcomes. But what the outcome was, of the three outcomes they were looking at, one of was, did doing this basically sit to stand, did it improve the patient's condition of dysphagia? And the answer was yes. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people maybe just saw the, the title of the article or read the abstract. But when you really read the article, what the researchers are concluding are not that it's specific to sit to stand in order to help dysphagia. It's essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, it's getting them moving with functional exercise. It helped with dysphagia, dysphagia it helped with ADLs, and I think it helped with general strength, et cetera. But that's truly the, the point of that paper is not to say, you know, you all SLPs got to get, be getting your patients to stand up from a chair more often, which is like, it's just a great exercise for somebody who's at a stroke in general. I just think it just says when we get moving, when we get exercising, when we get stronger, we, everything is helped, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think um, I, I talk about this in my class. One second. I talk about this in my class, that the thought of exercise is somehow just affecting the muscle. Somehow the muscle itself is the, is the affected tissues and the outcome has just been proven to be so incomplete and simplistic. And I, I quote an article in my classes. I think it's something to do the neurophysiology or the neuroplasticity of exercise. And how when we start a novel exercise, there's demonstrable MRI changes in the brain within five days when we start a novel exercise. And I think that that's key to everything, right? That those changes in our brain are affected when we go ahead with a new exercise program for dysphagia or for tongue weakness or whatever that is. And the thought that when we, when we do resistive tongue exercise, that somehow we're making that tongue muscle stronger, we are but most of it is happening up here and it's translated down to the tongue because not only is muscle more capable, but the person is more capable of sensation of motor function, et cetera. You know, the world, this, our worlds are complex, but we still allow these, these stupidly simple narratives to, to dominate. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I was going to say was yesterday I got down a social media rabbit hole and, and it's totally pertinent to this conversation. I wish I had saved it, but it was a study that had come out that had just shown that, 
exercising, standing, walking for a lot of our geriatric patients had such a positive effect on cognition, cognitive function, executive function. So, and that's obviously another portion of what SLPs treat as well. So I was having a conversation with, you know, a colleague about, you know, why do we just not think of these whole body effects? You know, I mean, telling your patient to go take a walk just seems so silly, but, and obviously I'm completely overgeneralizing here, but there's so much to be said about what just big things for the body can do for our little, you know, swallowing and, and cognitive worlds. Exactly. And the, and there's the overlap between our worlds, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if I can get a patient to exercise, to move more, to walk more, to, to climb hills instead of walk flat, et cetera, it probably is going to translate into all different areas, whether it's your world or OT or whatever that is, it's going to be a benefit. But somehow we've allowed those walls to go up between us. And we think, mm-hmm. oh, no, this is all about this this little muscle right here in the tongue that we need to strengthen or we need to stretch, right? And I just think that that's a disservice to the complexities of being human that we all need to get over. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think of, oh, gosh, maybe, how long ago have I been practicing? I just think maybe like 10 years ago, even just these silly exercises I was having my patients do that now it's just like, what yeah. was I doing? You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, in fairness to you, Teresa, those silly exercises, as you called it, were still helpful, right? Yeah, they, you yeah. saw efficacy, but I think now when we're able to step back from it and see that that little exercise that we taught, thinking we're making that tiny little muscle stronger, we are. But now that you can view it from the context of the larger person, I think everything makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, I love this stuff, Walt. I, I got a paper I want to talk about because I think it's it's a way cool paper. And it was a study done earlier this year by um, a researcher by the last name of Bittner, B-I-T-N-A-R. And what they looked at was um, would manual therapy, and I'll talk about the techniques in a minute, would it help with the basically um, adjusting, improving upper and lower esophageal sphincter pressure? Okay. So this to me was like, okay, I'm going to be blunt. This was just nirvana because... Um, when you see a paper coming out that shows exactly what you teach in your classes, I mean, literally the hands-on places you put your hands, that then becomes really relevant for the population that you're teaching. This is like, thank you, whoever gave this to me, right? Because basically they're <laughs> showing, that it, it is, I mean, heaven's clouds parted everything right there <laughs> when this paper opened up. Because for years I've been teaching speech pathologists to do manual neck traction, neck stretching, right? For various reasons that are more of a patient reported felt sense in the anterior cervical region, whether it's swallow or voice um, or breathing, right? That a lot of clinicians, a lot of SLPs were like, oh, that is just so PT-ish. I don't feel like what's in my scope of practice to do neck traction. I don't know the anatomy. I don't know the precautions, et cetera. Um, and then there's another aspect of that where you come into the upper diaphragm region, the lower ribcage region, and you basically do some manual therapy there. And there are studies, in the, especially in the osteopathic literature, that talk about GERD and various other related um, um, reflux and breathing issue by working the region of the diaphragm. But some of them were a little bit, they're, they're a bit of a reach. So, you know, when I was teaching this work and say, here, Teresa, I think this is relevant for you. You may look at that evidence and say, it's still pretty sketchy, Walt. But then Bittner, I, I think he or she knew exactly my problem. And they were basically kind of channeling that energy. And they came up with a study that basically the only two interventions were doing manual cervical traction and this sort of thing on the diaphragm region that I teach. And they showed that essentially it improved 
and the balance of what you're looking for in terms of measurable upper and lower esophageal sphincter pressure by using that manual therapy technique. And to me, it was like, okay, it gave me the opportunity to say, not only is this helpful from that anecdotal perspective, but, you know, here's some stinking evidence that says it is, and it's provable. And, you know, should you be using it? If you're working with GERD, if you're working with those, those values, then I, Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's the kind of paper, uh, obviously, that I love from a confirmation bias perspective, but it also allowed me to translate this work in a more um, concrete way to speech pathologists to say, okay, now I understand why I might want to do that paper or that, yeah. that type of technique. All right. Well, so let me ask you was, just uh, being yeah. completely naive here, Walt, what, how would that overlap with something that like a chiropractor might do? Because I know that's something, you know, chiropractors claim that they can help with reflux and things like that. And is that sort of something that they might be doing as well? Do you, do you think, do you know? Absolutely. Yes. Um, Here, here's the muddiness of all this. Who does manual therapy, right? Who can legally do manual therapy in this country? Um, It's a lot of people, Um, whether it's an MD, because occasionally somebody does a chiropractor, osteopath, an SLP, a PT, an OT, a massage therapist, um, and that probably, you know, sort of collects most of them. Could this be something a a, a chiropractor did? Okay, so what does a chiropractor do? What does a chiropractor do? Stereotypically, they they crack your your neck, right? Or they do those manipulative techniques. But chiropractic is an incredibly broad field. Their scope of practice allows them to do basically what I do for a living and what I teach, which is this slower kind of approach but so can just about anybody else. Right. Um, So could this be a chiropractic technique? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. And I get chiropractors in my classes once in a while, which is pretty cool to see them move from that, that thought bubble of what we think a chiropractor does to this more patient informed, slower type of stretching um, that I call manual therapy that I used to call myofascial release um, up until last year when COVID gave me a lot of time to think about how I want to change my life, what I do for a living and what I call my work. So, yeah. We decided yeah. what you want to be when you grow up yet. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking about like an astronaut, you I know, something it. like I that. Love yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. I, I love all that. Well, and what's interesting is my, my son went to a chiropractor when he was um, from a baby actually, but sort of around when he was like one or two, they just did some of these very slow manual things. And I just got talking to him because he did a lot of stuff. My son had bad reflux, did a lot of stuff in in the neck, in the chest region too. And like you said, it was much more slower control, just sort of pressure techniques. And I was like, this is totally different from when I come in here and you, you know, crack my neck sideways and things, but it it, it sort of seems like that was the approach that he took with the kids. And it always made me wonder like, how exactly is this helping? I was a believer, but Yeah, I didn't understand enough about it at the time. So, yeah, well, the, 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 the difficult part sometimes is the narrative that people use to explain what's wrong and what's happening. And that's where when you start, you know, taking a, a deep dive into the research, you still see a lot of papers reaching back into history and grabbing hold of those stories that were published in the past and say, you know, it's because the fascia is too tight. It's because the joints out of place. It's because the trigger point is there because all all those stories. Right. Um, And I think that's where you really have to put a, a separation between what the paper or what the research, you know, what the research says in terms of what's wrong versus what could be happening. Because just because we have an outcome doesn't mean that, that that validates the mechanism of action from the study. And the reason I say that is because I look at myself 
15 years ago and how I explain problems and how I explain the effects of my treatment, it's completely different than how I explain them now. But the odd thing is, I'm still basically doing the same thing with my hands as I did 15 years ago, except my story has changed. You know, um, if you saw me as a patient 15 years ago, I probably would have sounded a lot smarter than I do now. And it's got nothing to do with me getting old and dementia and everything. I would have sounded smarter because I would have told you the story that you'd never heard before about fascia, about myofascial release and how nobody else pays attention to it except people like me. And I would have helped you and you would have believed my story, classic post hoc fallacy. But the more I learned about that story, the more I realized that, first of all, a lot of it wasn't accurate, but second, that it wasn't the only story. So if you see me now, I'm, I'm going to allow uncertainty to reign when it comes to explaining things to you. And that includes in my seminars. It's like, you know what? There's not great clarity in terms of why this affects the person from an actual physiologic and neurophysiologic perspective. I'm going to give you some nice possibilities, but I'm not going to say it's because your fascia is tight because that's not accurate. So that's one of the problems when you go to, and I'm not saying your chiropractor did this, but we go to a clinician and, and part of it is the story that they sell us and tell us, right? Um, And then, I mean, well, from a placebo perspective, that can actually influence outcomes if if their story sounds plausible. So when I say to you, Teresa, I don't really know what's going on, and I don't really know why I'm helping you, you know, I'm going to kind of tank when it comes to outcomes, at least from that placebo and context-based perspective. So instead of telling somebody, I don't know, I say, there's not great certainty. It could be this, and it could be this. And one of them is always the story that you came in with, because everybody comes in with a story, whether you took, whether you thought it up or Dr. Google gave it to you or your doctor <laughs> gave it to you, right? It might be that, you know what, I've got all these trigger points in my neck that are giving me this swallowing problem. And there's papers written up that talk about that, right? And if you're my patient, I don't want to step on your story. I don't want to step on who told you that. So personally, what I do and what I teach is allow that. I think, Teresa, it could be that those trigger points in your neck or I give them the other story. The neurocentric model is there could be some neurologic holding patterns from a past injury, from the from the surgery, from the radiation that ha- are contributing to that, that your brain and, brain and central nervous system just haven't let go of yet. Whether it's the trigger point or whether it's the holding pattern in your nervous system, let's move on now to see if we can help that, right? I let you know that there's uncertainty. I let you know that your your opinion has value, but basically, I don't know what's going on but I know enough to tell you that. Yep. I love it. I I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, obviously age gives you wisdom, but I think it's interesting as you know, you get older and it's like the more you realize you don't know. And I think the more vulnerable I've gotten and open with my patients about things like that too, you know, it's like, I know what I know and I know what I'm seeing, but I don't have a complete explanation for you or a complete understanding. And I think before I would be so, afraid to say that. I think I, I would yeah. feel like they're coming to me because I'm the expert and I'm supposed to have the answers. But truth is, we're not going to have the answers a lot of the times. Yeah. And it was to me when it, because that's where I was before, you know, saying, no, I know this, this niche of myofascial release. And anytime I was presenting with, with conflicting evidence that, no, it's more the nervous system or no, it's something else. I just basically, you know, did the juvenile. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear that <laughs> because this stuff works so well. Why would I ever question 
how it's working and why it's working. But now I just, I love looking at the, the, the cascade of possibilities that it's not just one thing. It's never just one thing when we intervene with somebody, even though, you know, we have to narrow our sample size and we have to do all those things. So it seems like we're doing a study from the perspective of single variables, but they don't exist no matter how well run a study is and no matter how you dive into your mechanism of action. Yeah. When it comes to voice, I just want to go off on a small little tangent here, because this has been a really interesting thing for me. And I know that you do, you know, swallow your pride. You're dealing possibly more with, with swallow-based SLPs. But when it comes to the voice community and, and manual therapy, that seminal work was published by Arnold Aronson in 1990 in Clinical Voice Disorders, where he talked about using manual circumlaryngeal techniques to reduce the muscle tension to allow the dysphonia to sort of help to dissipate. It was one of his recommendations. And if you read that couple of pages in this big book, he basically had a sentence, which I'm going to paraphrase it here, that said, less aggressive means don't work. And, you know, when I read something like that, I look for the footnote. It's like, wait a minute, there's no footnote. Where did that come from? Right. Why did he say that? And it's like, OK, it's his book. You know, he can write it however he wants. But he made a bold claim there. And it basically it's probably his experience, which is fine because we all have that. Right. But then when you start moving forward in history in 1993, Roy said it and, and Leslie Matheson said it, where basically they say less aggressive means don't work. And they have a footnote. And you know what that footnote is? Arnold Aronson's book, which where did that come from? So basically from 1990, the thought that we must use aggressive means to manipulate the larynx to, to do laryngeal reposturing, to do hiatal adjustment, to do all the stuff with the muscle tension came from this story that was never validated. And I don't mean to, to at all diminish, you know, Nelson Roy's work and Leslie, all those people, right? Because they did wonderful work. But when you reach back into history, it's like, make sure there's been a proof for it. And that's where I'm at right now is I'm hitting this wall where there's this massive block of evidence that says, Basically, beating the crap out of somebody's larynx helps with voice disorders and secondarily with muscle tension dysphagia. But yet, must you always beat the crap out of them? Must you always do something from what the, what's called the operator perspective, where I'm the expert, instead of an interactive perspective, where the two of you are making the clinical decisions, are sharing decision making? And that's kind of where I'm at right now. And it's like, I need a piece of evidence to support my work. And hopefully in the next year or two, we're going to be doing something, sort of a comparative study with traditional, um, here, bite in the stick while I, while I manipulate your larynx to my more kinder, gentler version, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I say that with, with sarcasm, but I, there really is a big difference. And I just find that absolutely fascinating and, and more than a bit troubling that an entire industry was built on one sentence that was never justified or validated. Yeah, I, I think and going back to the whole evidence-based practice argument is like that was his clinical experience. That was what he thought was best, you know, and I, yeah. I just I always think that's so fascinating because so many times we, you know, dismiss other people's experiences or we think that they're totally wrong or, or we found totally different experiences. And that's OK. Yeah. It's OK to foster yeah. your own experience and, and to really hold on to that, because that's that's the beauty of that's the art of our field. Right. And unfortunately, when you're when you're publishing and you're working on an, a paper that needs to be peer reviewed, you know, everybody past Aronson met that criteria. Right. Mm -hmm. They met the criteria for evidence based um, publishing and evidence based practice. But if you really unpack it. It's like, what is it showing? It's showing that somebody's experience, which does account for something. And I don't want to diminish our clinical judgment, 
but our clinical judgment is so incredibly biased of what we see, what we believe, how we've been trained, all those things that we can't remove our bias from that, which is why a good study is supposed to at least minimize that a little bit. But I, I just think it's interesting. And, you know, that, that really has affected how I look at my evidence. Like, where, where are they getting that statement? And if they don't have a backup for it, I do realize that it's their belief. But I've got a lot of beliefs, too, that I can't justify and validate, too. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point. I think there's a lot of things in our field that sort of are just thoughts, beliefs that that have not been verified or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a wild world. Well, one other, yeah, I, and okay, so one other belief that just drives me batty is when a clinician <laughs> comes in and we do this work and they, they say, this could be really helpful with my head neck cancer patient. And then you have, oh, okay, so I'm going to get my, I, I always get myself in trouble, so it doesn't really matter. It's okay, the, well, the clinician at your hospital who does you know manual lymphatic drainage who somehow is a bit higher on the food chain who says oh no you can't do manual therapy or myofascial release until we clear all the lymph and it's like well where did that come from and who made you boss today and maybe they are boss right but the thought that somehow what we're doing with a really slow gentle relatively light sustained pressure is somehow going to damage something that the person doing manual lymphatic drainage drainage is getting with almost the identical pressure. And again, those are those old rules that people were trained by. And they're never, a lot of times they're never willing to question and challenge. And I, you know, I can't help the therapist who goes back and has to hit that sort of, you know, I'm lower on the food chain. And I can't say that, yes, I can do manual therapy when somebody above me or somebody with more experience says no manual lymphatic drainage says, no, you can't do that. And maybe they're thinking that we're going in there with knuckles and scraping and doing all these things that I don't think they're they're safe on anyone. Um, But that's just me. But when you really realize the overlap through with all these different modalities that are separated by walls based on their, their title, it's like, basically, we're touching people with therapeutic intent. Are they really that different? Yeah. Sorry, all my li- you're giving me a chance to be like, really, that today? I, I love it. Therapeutic. Well, I should be paying you for my counseling love, session Yes, today. please do. I like wine. Yeah. Can, yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. Send me some Finger Lakes wine, please. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I love this. Well, I mean, I think, you know, these are all things that SLPs think of all the time. These are things that you know, SLPs are really smart people. And sometimes we just get caught up in the system or just told no, or told that this isn't right. Or our beliefs don't make sense. Like you said, because a boss might say no, because that's what they were told, you know? And and I I love that you're clarifying a lot of these things, because like I said, I know that a lot of people have these thoughts and we've had a lot of these conversations and nobody truly knows the answer. And, you know, there's some people that just say, okay, and accept it. And there's others that are wanting to buck the trend and, and do what they think is best. So Thank you for yeah, yeah. providing this evidence for us. I, the, one of the, the experiences that we do right off in my in one of my classes is, you know, I get a lot of, I get SLPs in that voice and swallowing class, but I also get PTs, massage therapists, chiropractors, et cetera. And a lot of them come with all these different beliefs on what you're affecting, right? Because manual therapy and massage are all about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to release your muscle now. I'm going to release your fascia. I'm going to adjust your joint. You know, the only thing that we're really touching, we know we're touching is skin. And unless you've got a scalpel, everything else is a bit of a leap into the body, right? So even like in the massage narrative, we're, we're reducing muscle tension or in manual circumlaryngeal tension as if somehow I can grab hold of you and say, okay, right now, Teresa, I'm, we're, we're just ignoring everything else and I'm getting at that high muscle tone. And even if that's your belief and your experience, when you touch somebody and let's, well, let me back up. When 
you work from somebody from a behavioral perspective and you do experiences and exercises, et cetera, with them without touching, right? Without doing quote unquote exercise, you see positive changes because the person is processing from up here, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, that's the basis for what a lot of us do. So a lot of the new research in manual therapy is that touch is basically not affecting the tissue, but the tissues through, ner- through mechanoreceptors and, and central and autonomic nervous system are basically signalers to higher center. We're basically giving input here for the brain to do all the heavy lifting. So when I'm faced with somebody who says, everything I've done is about affecting the muscle. And I think I can get to your fill in the name, name of that muscle, right? And it's like, okay, it, when you touch someone, if the person is feeling you touch, you've instantly doubled the possibilities because as soon as they feel you touch, their brain is participating or their brain is fearing or their brain is hoping or their brain is doing all these different things that sure, you might be manipulating that muscle, but as soon as you touch and they feel that touch, you, you've wiped out the possibility that it's only a muscle by itself that you're impacting. And I think that applies to every single thing that we do, including the thought that somehow we can touch somebody and only influence their lymph without autonomics and central processing to take place at the same time. And I, that's to me, that's that concept of a multifactorial explanation that is so rare still in the literature because everybody's talking about you know, what they're looking at through their paper towel tube of what they think the tissue in question, instead of broadening that tube and looking at the person in question and not the tissue in question. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more, Walt, about sort of how you do involve the patient in those conversations and how the patient's response to the things that you're doing alters or tailors your treatment plan or your, yeah. Sure. So, First of all, look back at the operator type system where basically the patient comes in with a problem. We listen to it. We look at it on the scope, whatever. However, we're, we're assessing that, right? And then from our clinical judgment, we're saying, okay, I, I think I know what's going on. And I'm going to use manual laryngeal type work, whether it's for dysphonia or muscle tension dysphagia, right? Where basically the clinician is doing the manipulating. Even if you're going to do manipulation, which is a more aggressive and quicker one, what I like to do is say, okay, um, I might feel something, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gifted. I'm trained. I've done all this work. I know how to feel your crap. I know how to feel, I call them crud pockets or frozen chicken. I know how to feel this stuff, but I don't know if that's what's important to you. So Teresa, as I, as I move your laryngeal region back and forth, I'm going to stop when I get to an end range. And I want you to tell me what you feel. And I, that's my favorite question is, what do you feel? And sometimes patients will say, what, what do I feel or what do I feel? Like somehow I'm trying to psychoanalyze you. And I, what I do is I don't get caught in that trap. I say, what are you feeling right now? Because when I ask that open-ended question, you might say, I feel that difficulty when I try to swallow. Or you might say something that seems more psychosocial in relationship to, you know what, that's that feeling of fear I get when I try to swallow, right? So you're getting both the physical and the psychological piece of that, right? So here's what here's where things get messy. Where my training said, oh, you know what, over here, when I press like that, that's, I think that's the problem. And then I come into you and I offer you the option of both of them. And you might say, oh, no, that's not the problem. That's not the feeling. It's when you go to the other side. And I'm thinking, but I don't feel anything on the other side. So there's a lot of dissonance there where I'm saying my experience said it's over here. But Teresa, you're telling me it's over here. And what I've, what I've learned to do is, is elevate your opinion and require your opinion whenever possible to let me know that 
this is meaningful, even though you can't basically feel something, Walt, that that's the experience that I get when I can't do that swallow or my voice goes bad or whatever it is. And in, in essence, it's allowing my ego to get squashed a bit to see if I can elevate your opinion on what's most important. And I use a saying all the time that I know a lot, I've learned a lot, I've taught a lot, but there's something missing from all of that is I don't know you, and what you're feeling, what you're fearing, what you're hoping for, what you're expecting until I not only ask you, but require that from you. For some people, it's easy. They instantly tell you, oh, yep, that's that feeling and it feels good or it feels it hurts, but I really like that or it hurts, but it feels like it might be helpful. And sometimes the process is bing, bing, bing. You ask a couple of questions and you're right there. And sometimes the patient is just they're on they, they just don't get my questioning. Sometimes it's because they're not understanding what I'm asking for. Sometimes they're incapable or unwilling to give feedback because they think you're the expert. You should know what to do. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of education on my need for them to be an active participant in the entire process. I know I've lost patience over the years because I'm too much work. I am really demanding. Um, but a lot of patients have like come to me expecting basically I'm this expert. They lay on my table and they expect me to tell them what's wrong and tell them what, what needs to be done. But then when I start having this conversation where I'm actually valuing their input and, and that they actually have something to contribute to this, they're really refreshed by it. And actually they kind of really get into the process. And I had a patient once to say to me, you know, you are the only person who's ever asked me what I thought was going on. And that that actually had value in determining what you were going to do. And the more I go down this rabbit hole with my own research in terms of, of shared decision-making and how it could potentially affect outcomes and why it's so valuable to include the patient in, the more I think I need to be a rebel included in manual therapy, even though there's not a huge precedence for it. Yeah. I think there's so much of our field that we need to include more of our patients feedback with. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. Yeah. Well, I love that. Well, I hate that people yeah. have hate that people have left you because they think you're too much work, but I, I, I get that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult dichotomy, right? Like we have to involve the patient to get a lot of the information, to get the right feedback, to get the right treatment plan. But then if patients don't want to participate because they're used to just being told what to do, it's, it's tough. There's also the patient who, okay. So the person, you know, the, the infant can't communicate in the same way. The dementia patient can't communicate in the same way, et cetera. Um, but there's also the patient profile who seems, as we look at them, fully capable, fully sensate, fully intelligent, fully communicative. Um, and you say, you know what? I need your feedback. For instance, I'm just going to use something simple. Um, let me know if something is too painful, right? And they go, yep, I'll do that, right? And I have a specific example that I'm not going to go into here, but it was a patient years ago who taught me never to make those assumptions because every time I started doing what I wanted, what I thought I was needed to do, this was back when I, when I lead, needed or asked for less feedback, I'd look up and I'd look at my patient's face and she was making this grimace like I was hurting her. I'd say, is, is that too much? And she said, well, don't do any more than that. It's like, okay, let's retrain again. Um, if anything gets close to being too much, tell me. And she'd nod and we'd go do our thing again. And I'd look at her face and she was grimacing. And it wasn't until a couple of sessions later where my understanding of the psychosocial aspects behind her made me understand why she was not capable of telling a man no, that 
something was too much or not right. And that was a big door opener for me to, to not make assumptions that, okay, this is an intelligent, sensate you know, person on the table that, of course, she's going to do what I ask her to. And I didn't take into account that while she says, yes, I will, but you know, from her psychological, social past, she couldn't tell a man to stop. And I just thought, I need, I need to, to imprint this on the inside of my brain and never forget that just because someone says, yes, they will tell me that I assume they can, which is why I'm such a pest. I, I am a pest when it comes to asking questions because my entire process is about getting to yes. Teresa, does this feel like it might be useful? And if it's not yes, that we need to continue working until we get to yes. And that every person that I work with is unique in that way. And I shouldn't make those assumptions. Yeah, yeah, completely. You know, one of the papers that I want to cover is a paper that was published in 2019 by Chris Kunis and a whole host of other really well-known speech pathologists. And it was basically a survey, a national survey. And what they did was they sent around a survey through, I think, through the Carnell Listserv, through some of your ASHA subgroups, et cetera. Uh, what they're looking for is, is speech pathologists with experience or who who view swallowing as their um, interest. Okay, and it was a it was a wide ranging survey. But a couple of things that were really interesting from that were that of the respondents. Now, granted, it was a it was a smaller sample of respondents versus all of SLPs. It was speech pathologists with an interesting swallowing. Of the respondents, forty three percent said that they're using manual therapy for swallowing disorders. And I thought that was really interesting. Now, granted, that's not the whole bulk of all of you, but the vast majority of, you know, almost a 50% of your population of your SLPs who are working with that are using manual therapy of some sort, most of which they've gotten from on-the-job training. And when I asked the question in class, my class is about, um, okay, who does manual circumlaryngeal treatment? And I get a couple of these coming up. And I can tell right away what these means versus that, right? Yeah, because yeah. This means... I learned a little bit at school. I learned a little bit in from my supervisor, whatever. But yet, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. You don't have to go to formal continuing education in order to start learning stuff or even to learn it, right? But I thought that was really fascinating that that many clinicians were using manual techniques for um, dysphagia. Another part of that, um, that same survey study by Chris Kunis is a, on a little bit of a side journey they went in terms of talking about some of the basically the neurophysiologic aspect of massage and manipulative therapy when it comes to inflammatory markers with regards to scarring and radiation. And, you know, this is probably more borrowed from breast cancer research where they're see- versus head neck cancer specific, where they're looking at the, the tissue-based hormonal neurophysiologic effects of basically a sustained type of touch and how it reduces a lot of the inflammatory markers that are sort of characteristic of runaway um, fibrotic changes. And that's that's not a statement saying, see, I told you this is why it works. Yeah. It's just saying why there might even be more reason why you may wish to consider including it, whether it's you as a clinician doing it or having the patient themselves begin to do some touch-based intervention themselves. And whether it's the thing we think we're doing to the infl- inflammatory markers, whether it's the thing we think we're doing to the patient, or the thing we think we might be doing, we're allowing the patient to begin accepting who they are now, right? In terms of touch-based acceptance of, okay, it's safe to touch, it's safe to be touched. And I think from a psychosocial perspective, um, it's tough to measure those, but I think it's a huge aspect of why touch-based interventions are sometimes really helpful. I don't know whether, here I go off on another tangent, but 
I don't know about in your field as much as in physical therapy, but I have basically a touch-based manual therapy practice. I do a lot of exercise. We do a lot of function-based exercise, but it's also from the context of touch-based intervention. And so many patients come into my practice and saying, you know what? Um, my last PT never even touched me or my, yeah. my orthopedic surgeon never even touched me. Now, I get that. I really get it. But I think in medical school, there should be a class, and even if it's just a one-hour lecture, called Touch Your Patients Even Though You Don't Think It Matters. Because yeah. there is evidence out there to say it does matter from what they perceive as the value of you caring and the value of the intervention. But there is also something from a, from a reassurance perspective, and it's contextual, but that touching seems to at least touch or to reach into some of the patient's expectations for that. And you can't diagnose certain inner problems by touch, but I think you can connect with patient preferences and values when you say, oh, you mean right here? And have you say, yeah, that's that feeling I get right there. I think you just lit off that huge context, context bubble in the patient's brain to say, somebody understands me, yeah, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's what I do for a living. And I think sometimes that really, is that part of why I have outcomes? You're damn right it is, right? Yeah, the yeah. immeasurables, but, but they matter. Yeah. I think you know, from a swallowing perspective, I can't tell you the amount of patients that I've seen that, you know, I look in their mouth. I have them move their tongue around while I'm looking in their mouth or, you know, of course yeah. doing fees as well too. But I've had so many patients that are like, we are the first person that's actually looked in my mouth or the first, the first SLP that's actually had me do something or obviously with doing instrumentals, you're the first person that's actually wanted to get an instrumental and see what's going on inside. But to me, I just think that's, yeah, it's so we Like we cannot diagnose things by just looking at them. Like we, we have to actually right. take a much deeper look inside. We can't just right. from the surface, look at things. So, right. And we did a, we did a, um, a video so it's three or four years ago now where we were able to do a split screen video of um, someone being scoped, right. Um, in term, and then having them go through the swallow and talk and everything. And we were able to get a recording of me on the outside doing yes, um, some of the that. movements. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you know, it's a little, it's a little muddy when it came to phlegm and everything, but uh, Brooke Bielman has done a better version of that that we're hoping to get up online fairly soon of, of a cleaner scope with the external work being done. And it, it doesn't prove that, see, this is why this manual therapy works. But if you're seeing internal impact from externally applied forces, well, okay, you, you can explain the potential outcome from a lot of different reasons, but the patient is experiencing that, you know, whether it's a retinoid movement, whether it's whatever that is, when we do the manual therapy applied from the outside. And to me, sometimes those are game changers when it comes to clinicians seeing, oh, I can get now why you would want to do that because look at what's happening inside. And I think it also helps for the patient to sort of envision from that perspective, everything that's a little fuzzy. And certainly you show them the feeds and everything in terms of the video or the, the live feed, but to be able to then go back and say, okay, when we're doing some of this, this is what, what I'm expecting to see and why maybe, maybe why it's a part of the, the whole impact. Mm -hmm. I love it. Anything else you want to cover, Walt? Yeah. I mean, from that, from that patient-centered perspective, it, to me, that is, that is just the, the core take-home that I want anybody to have, although they think it's about the manipulation that we're yeah. doing. Um, and it is. That's just, that's just my buy. That's how I get buy-in, right? But um, yeah. that's, that's really where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it, 
as you learn, as you get older, as you get more experience, there's so much you learn about sort of the art of being a therapist. And I think this is what a lot of it is. You know, it's why does that SLP get those outcomes and this SLP doesn't if they have the same foundational knowledge base. And, and I've just learned, you know, obviously when I first started my fees business, I learned that it's just so much in how you approach the patient. Um, You know, there's a lot of SLPs that'll say, you know, fees is so invasive and they don't want to do it, but I never had a patient that I couldn't pass a scope on. And and a, and a lot of it, I attribute 100% of it to my approach to the patient and how I involve them and how I, you know, ask them questions or involve the family. And there's just so much to that, that I sort of learned even before I had my son and experiences with him. And then once I had experiences with him, I'm just, I double down on that now. But um, there's yeah. so much to, to getting the buy-in of your patients before even opening your mouth to all the knowledge you have in there. So, yeah. And from my perspective, in terms of getting that buy-in, is sometimes it's the hardest thing that I'm doing. It is the it's hard work to, first of all, to to get them to talk to, or or to communicate, but to maybe to relate to them why it is important that they contribute. Because maybe in the past when they've tried to contribute, you know, they got minimized or they got laughed at or something sounded foolish. And it's like, you know what? Let just tell me what you're feeling right now. And um. Number one, I'm not going to laugh at you. And please don't try and edit it to make it make sense for a medical profession. Tell me what you're feeling, and then we'll figure out how to make that meaningful. That sense of the humanness, the humility of wanting to, to meet them where they're at, instead of, I got the white coat, you sit in that chair, and, and I know what's best for you, which, you know, I, I, I've never met a clinician who says they work from that perspective. But when, when you sort of witness their narrative, when you witness their interaction skill, it is about their expertise and yeah. we are experts, but I've learned to be an expert who knows that, you know, there's a lot missing from my knowledge and I need to collect that and, and make my patient that full therapeutic partner. Um, and it's just, it's just enriched my professional practice. And I think in a lot of ways it's rolled into me as a human being and my own um, personal relationships as well. Yep. Completely. Completely. All right. I love this so much. Well, I know we could both, chat on this topic for years and years but we should probably let don't make get it back four years homes. next time you know? i know i know i can't believe that that's insane that it's been no, four I, I years because you know what um just the exposure that um speech pathologists got from that one we did back in 2017 exposure not just to me but exposure to using the hands-on work has just been invaluable mm-hmm. well for me so i thank you for that but i think for mm-hmm. a lot of your your um your colleagues in terms of opening up that door to say, you know what, there's a lot of other things we can do. And it, it is within our scope of practice. And if you yeah. hit feet um, pushback from the PT or whatever, it's like, you know what, I, I deserve to stand here with you. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, that I'm, I'm licensed to do. I'm allowed to do, and I'm trained to do, you know, um, yep. and, and it, it, it takes a while. Yep. It does. It takes some it does. courage. Yep. Yep. It does. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Walt. I appreciate you so, so much. Thanks again for having me and, um, and uh, have, a, have a great year, great holiday. So. Thank you. You as well. Yes. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. 
Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.